Hello and welcome to the Climate Friendly Travel Podcast, where each episode we speak to the great and the good of the global travel and tourism industry to learn more about what they're doing to ensure that the principles of climate friendly travel are being advanced. I'm Jed Brown, your host for this week's episode, and today I'm delighted to be joined once more by Shalana Pereira, who's the founder of Retrace Hospitality in Sri Lanka. In this second episode, I talked to Shalana about the concept of capacity in tourism destinations. Do we know how many tourists we can safely welcome before there is a negative impact on the host community, the environment and the traveller experience? We also discuss poverty, its role in climate resilience and how this links with the wider climate change crisis. Big issues and thought-provoking discussions. Enjoy. Shalana, welcome back. In the last episode, you mentioned something which is starting to come up again and again just now, which is the point about capacity studies and indeed carrying capacity studies. It seems as though there aren't a huge number of destinations around the world today, ironically including island nations, that really understand what their capacity is for growth or management of tourism. Have there been any studies of this nature for Sri Lanka as far as you know? And how big of a problem is it if we don't understand how big our capacity for tourism is? Yeah, it's an interesting question. So, and, and Sri Lanka is in a very interesting time uh, right now. And I arrived on the island also just before this economic collapse. So if I zoom out a little and, and sort of before we talk about carrying capacity, I mean, it's linked, but I think it's sort of the chicken and the egg, right? What happens here in this context of this country is, okay, Sri Lanka faced... Um, bankruptcy for the first time in its independent history which meant that there was uh, you know a double deficit crisis right we were not able to pay off our loans and the government you know domestically was facing a deficit crisis as well balance of payments basically you know we were importing more than we were exporting so you've got two you've got two two sort of two deficits at once now the importing more than exporting what does that mean um we're consuming more than we're producing in terms of dollars right so we're buying with foreign exchange us dollars and then we are actually earning a certain amount of foreign exchange through exports which in sri lanka's context uh, tourism is one of the largest right and it's one of the quickest to convert because you're earning them right at at the time that the product is consumed so tourism export receipts are extremely important to countries like sri lanka when a country goes bankrupt and tourism export receipts um are mainstay of the economy to get out of bankruptcy there is a massive priority to focus on tourism and just focus on numbers, volume, 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 let's churn as many dollars from wherever we can get so that we have that foreign exchange reserve that is required for us to import the essentials such as fuel and medicines and so on, which we are dependent on to run the economy. This is similar in a few other destinations that have handled it quite well, right? So Mauritius, you know, the Maldives, et cetera, they're completely dependent on tourism, but post-pandemic, they manage their reserves extremely well. Sri Lanka is a little bit more diverse as an economy, right? So we've got a small-scale manufacturing, we've got fishing, we've got agricultural exports, uh, you know, we've got garments exports, we've got rubber, et cetera. So that is that is why tourism was always seen as a great 
you know, an avenue for foreign exchange earning, but it was never the only avenue. There were others as well, but it was the quickest to recover would be then, okay, we're going to allow anybody from anywhere in the world to come to Sri Lanka, right? So to talk about carrying capacity now in this country, they're going, no, we need more. We need more. We need more, 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 more. Yeah. That's it. But there are very switched on people here on the ground who've been working in tourism, we, you know, even before I was born, that are well aware of the value of the destination in its form as being conserved or regenerated, right? Less is more. But our safari parks, our national parks, which are marketed for having the highest density of wild leopards in the world, you know, they're overrun. There's no carrying capacity plans there. There's an official number of jeeps that are allowed in on a daily basis. But because of corruption and mismanagement, uh, bribery and corruption, really, th th these rules are ignored. Right. We have boats going out to see whales in the, in the southern seas. And, you know, the regulation is very limited. Right. Until people realize, hey, we're destroying our own product. We can't do that. Let's control it. The quality of the guest experience is diminishing because we are overcrowding or we are, you know, clustering and we're not managing this. So it's two edges. Right. Because Jed, there are also some source markets that are less switched on to this. Yeah. I'm not going to name specific countries, but there are source markets which have an aspirational travel uh, behavior who have, let's say, not traveled for decades and decades and decades like the Europeans have. So they have, you know, they have acquired wealth in more recent times, newer, younger, independent countries. And those travelers come to Sri Lanka, right? Because we allow everybody, right? From wherever in the world, we don't discriminate. And we're very, you know, we're accessible visa free, visa, you know, visa on arrival for most everyone. And our location is so central that people can fly in equidistant from London to Sydney, equidistant from Beijing to Johannesburg, between Dubai and Singapore, about halfway. So not all travelers are on the same wavelength. Uh, and we kind of have all of them. So it's a long-winded answer to your question as to carrying capacity is not a priority. Earning money is. Yeah. I think, and I think that there is a logic to that. And I think sometimes, I think sometimes it's forgotten about in certainly in the in the wealthier in the wealthier destinations um whereby you know the, the most important thing is to to not be in poverty you know that 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 absolutely is the first prerequisite and therefore it is it is kind of natural if you've been in a situation where you know tourism brings a huge amount of revenue in um which can support the whole economy, infrastructure, population, etc. To sort of say, hold on though, we need to limit that. It feels kind of counterproductive. And I and I kind of get that. Um, but it's not something I think if you're from, as I am from a relatively wealthy, you know, nation in the West here in the UK, we we tend not to sort of see that. We we tend to be very, you know, we almost take this kind of higher ground of, hey, you know, guys, you really need to manage your capacity a little bit better because it's, you know, it's but it is Intrinsically, it is crazy. If tourism is your main, you know, if, if that's one of your main earners, you, you have to protect your ability to earn from it rather than if you do welcome everybody else, you can destroy it. And I think that's that kind of, like you say, it's, it's, like, it's like any of these discussions, you know, when we talk about climate-friendly travel as well, it's nuanced. It's massively nuanced and, and, it's, and it's complicated. Um, and I think that is a challenge. I mean, you know, we certainly try and encourage different destinations to do a carrying capacity study just to at least understand the situation. But I think it's very yeah. hard. It's very, it's very hard to sort of preach, you know, what you should or shouldn't be doing to a nation that, that possibly um, is, is not as relatively wealthy um, as the nation that you're from. 
Correct. So, you know, and, and a lot of studies have been done. There's a lot of research in the tourism sector in Sri Lanka. There's, universe, you know, there's graduates, there's, there's a lot of brains behind tourism strategy here and lots of papers and, and reports published by locals, foreign experts, etc. But it's a question of implementation, enforcement, consistency in regulation, consistency in government policy with long term visions that we don't have. It's just a, it's just a result of culture and South Asian uh, governance. There is none of that consistency and long-term vision, right? In nation building, nation branding, it's all over the place. So people have suggested, people have advised on science-based caring capacity studies by zones, by regions, you know, very intelligent proposals. It's just not, what happens is the masses vote in governments and that, you know, in terms of what's pol what policies are favored. Okay, we're gonna incentivize and bring more travelers to your businesses. Sri Lanka's tourism industry is run by MSMEs, micro, small, medium enterprises, right? It's quite beautiful, but also that means that they're heavily dependent on, a whole fragmented supply chain, all of whom are dependent on making sure, number one, the international airport is running, which it wasn't last year because of a fuel crisis, flights stopped coming for a short time, right? And they had to refuel in India. So for as long as our airport is open and operating and flights are coming in, um, that's our only way to really get you. Know, we have a tiny, tiny number of cruise tourists, but again, that's not really a sustainable model. And that's very much a numbers game as we spoke about, right? Getting a few cruise travelers in for a day or two, um, insignificant and not the, not the way forward. So uh, something I'd like to add, you know, you mentioned, okay, the UK being a wealthy country, Sri Lanka now being the sort of a lower middle income, we were an upper, we were more moving towards an upper middle income country until our currency collapsed and, and we filed bankruptcy. Um, it's not Sri Lankans that are flying around the world on holiday on a regular basis. You know, it's not people from the third world or emerging or frontier markets that own passports and travel on weekend trips on a regular basis. No, there's a small number of Sri Lankans that have the luxury and privilege to travel. Uh, very difficult with a Sri Lankan passport because of visas. Um, we're one of the worst ranked. So Sri Lanka is an example like many right? The majority of countries uh, in the world, you know, the populations don't have passports. Sorry, the, the larger percent of the populations don't have passports, right? If we talk China, India, same. So it's really the wealthiest few that are doing the most damage. They're also the consumers of these products. So how, and they're also the, the, the countries that are talking about COP agendas and net zero targets and so on. So when you know it's really tough ethically for me it's very difficult you know you're you're talking to an audience who are quite sustainable relatively speaking right even those with wealth you know they don't have multiple houses and a holiday home here where they get out for the summer and a place here for the go to go skiing in the winter and so you know so if you look at the footprint of a european extremely unsustainable yeah. right but amassed so much wealth over centuries of extractive economic development globally that they now are saying you know i always say you know there are certain countries that made a business out of um destroying the environment and they are now making a business out of trying to fix it and i try not to get caught in that i try to say look at the sri lankan roots in regeneration which are very very old right there is a heritage in regenerative development in this country through our architecture through our food through our practices of mindfulness and spirituality just our way of living. So rooting back to that and giving a high quality experience or high quality life for residents through that. Right? It's it's true what you say though. It's, it is very hard because it is most of the wealthy, the wealthy nations in the Northern hemisphere, to be fair as well, um, who are doing the travel, who are, you know, like you say, they're, they're possibly, unbeknownst themselves, possibly, you know, haven't been sustainable certainly in their history. And they're contributing a huge amount towards, um, you know, global, you know, global climate change. Um, and at the same time, 
you know, preaching that, you know, hey, everybody should cut down on the fossil fuels and everyone else. And it's like, there's these other nations that aren't as wealthy. So they're saying, well, hold on a minute here. <laughs> you know, you've had your day in the sun. We need to have our day in the sun as well. There, there needs to be some, there needs to be some sort of way of facilitating that. And I think, um, I think that that makes it very, very challenging as well. I've seen a few discussions, I'm sure you have as well, played out on LinkedIn, um, which which get kind of all they get quite feisty actually, um, rightly so. <laughs> um, where you know there's a there's a lot of people that are saying, and I've I've had it within my circle where people are saying, you know, you know, I'm not gonna travel anywhere by plane because you know, we've got a responsibility not to travel and I'm just gonna, you know, go to Cornwall or whatever else. There's a part of me that's thinking, well, hold on. If if everybody stops, then these these nations, which which do have a percentage of their GDP derived from tourism, that's not helping them in the slightest. That's actually really going to compound matters because one of the yeah. gravest one of the gravest issues that we have. Yes, you know, obviously, climate change is a, is a, a big significant problem, but relative, you know, um, lack of wealth arguably is a bigger problem. I was listening to a podcast recently, and I wish I could remember the guy's name because uh, it's going to be very frustrating. I'll, I'll try and dig it out and stick it in the show notes afterwards. But this uh, guy, he was from Canada, actually, and he was saying that um, that really the the, the 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 largest problem we have with climate change is less developed nations. He said, you know, when we talk about rising sea levels, for example, linked to climate change, that's not an issue for the Netherlands, because they've got wealth in order to prepare for that. And they've got, um, you know, they've got wealth where that whereby they can prepare for different scenarios. If you're a poor nation, it's going to be pretty bad. Um, and this right. particular guy, it was just making a very interesting case for saying, you know, the environmentally sustainable stuff we, we absolutely need to be doing. And we need to be doing a lot more. We certainly need to remove our reliance on fossil fuels. But actually, the the, the big the big challenge that we've got to do is elevate people out of poverty. And he was saying that that's the, that's the single biggest one. If you can get a nation out of relative poverty and to be relatively wealthy, then everybody's lives are improved massively. Um, just what yeah. yeah, it's a tricky one. You know, that needs to happen. But at the same time, you know, what I recognize here now being in Sri Lanka after spending a lot of my life in or time in in the west is that how do you tell uh, you know um, a family or that have just earned enough through hard work in developing a small business uh, and when sri lanka's economy was really experiencing a boom between 2009 to 2019 you know the wealth really increased if our household per capita income was increasing at a healthy rate and Sri Lankans were starting to travel abroad more often, people who never would, and taking their families within the region and so on. You know, how do you tell them, you know, aspiring to buy an, a bigger car or a bigger house, you know, point fingers and say, look, that's quite unsustainable. You know, just like, excuse <laughs> me, what? Oh, you, you've flown around the world, you've traveled and lived in different countries, you know, so I, I have to be careful. I haven't been, I haven't stepped on a plane in, in over two years now. So I, I do, I am able to sell that story well, but it is because I've had the privilege of flying all over the world my whole life. Uh, and now I've just said, you know what, I don't need to do that. I have plenty to, to just explore here. But so the alleviation of poverty, yes. And is that is that made possible through tourism? I think in certain, certain ways, yes. We need to talk more with pride, with passion about domestic tourism, really having that, um, having the value, you know, spending equivalent amounts on domestic holidays as you would on a foreign holiday minus the flights, 
right? So giving it that value within the country, which people are like, oh, why would I spend that when I can go across the world for that? You know, uh, okay, but it's, you know, less is more. Let's travel less, but let's travel better. You know, that's yeah. that's the advice I'm talking about. Let's have really high quality experiences. Let's spend more time, but go to fewer places. And over our lifespan, I think that's what will happen. We came, all of us in some form or another came from nomadic communities you know we move people constantly are moving right around the world look at migration and immigration and so on of, of populations it continues to happen more often for extreme reasons like war and, and climate change or you know there's something really interesting happening in Sri Lanka is you see post-pandemic a large number of so-called digital nomads or remote workers that are spending great amount of time here right Average length of stay in Sri Lanka pre-COVID used to be 10 days. Now we have a large segment. I don't have the exact figures, but a large number of travelers that are staying a month, two months, three months, six months. Sure. Visas have been adjusted accordingly. And they are obviously spending far less per night. But over time, you have, you're have you building a relationship with the destination. You are renting accommodation, not just paying for branded hotels, which have you know strong backing, but you're you're living in villages. I've seen it. I mean, and it's it's a growing segment. Yeah. There's Russian Ukrainian economic refugees and war refugees here that have moved. Okay, there's a challenge with you know them trying to set up businesses and you know competing with locals for business, but they are investing, they are buying property, they are investing. So that kind of movement of people is a new form of I don't want to call it tourism, but it's really really we as a destination are selling in a lifestyle to those that aspire to this tropical laid back life. And there's tremendous value that is far more sustainable than this sort of, let me book this fancy trip or this budget trip to back, back, back around for 10 days and then bounce. Um, so yeah, that helps. It's not often, that's not often spoken about. I, I think it's not spoken about enough. The whole long stay thing, you know, everybody sort of says, and we, we you know, we know, look, if you want to be more sustainable, you travel, you need to stay longer. Um, but, you know, again, it, when we, we were talking before about the numbers game, about attracting more tourists, actually, it, you know, if you attract less tourists but staying longer, you, you achieve the same benefit, but actually it is more environmentally more environmentally sound because less flights, because there's, if, if, if instead you're having half the number of tourists but they're staying twice the number of nights, um, it's certainly a heck of a lot less flights. But also, like you say, the other great advantages are they really get under the skin of the culture the heritage the history and it helps to protect that it engenders um you know local and national pride and all of that kind of fun stuff um i sometimes think we, we don't speak enough about that i don't hear that spoken about enough in in you know different tourism events that i go to when we're talking about sustainability about real concerted efforts to encourage people to to stay longer i suppose is that is this what we're calling slow tourism is that this is effectively what slow tourism is. I guess there's trendy words for this, Jeb, that came about before you and I started talking about, and I think slow travel, conscious travel, you know, extending the length of stay. But here's what I think it is, right? How I see travel having evolved is that social media is largely the play on both sides. Mm. Bucket list, the bucket list culture has ruined international travel and tourism, right? And then Instagram influencing and social, other social media platform influencing where if you are not you know, photographed at destination X, Y, and Z in your early 20s, early 18s, or whatever, during your university years. And I, I, I fell victim to that. I very much fell victim to that, you know. If I look back at my Instagram profile when I was living in Europe and traveling around uh, before relocating to Sri Lanka, I think, God, oh, this was really unsustainable, right? And so that instant gratification, that aspiration, you know, that desire to constantly see more and want more, it's, the, it's again, that unconscious consumption. Mm. 
that does not facilitate an appreciation for tro- slow travel, right? But the slow travel, I think that I see, it's really actually, think about it in historic times, right? People moved around by boat, not by plane, right? If you're going to travel from London to Colombo by boat, and I'm talking colonial era, pre-colonial era, whatever, th- you're not arriving in Colombo and then hopping on you know, <laughs> another boat to the Maldives for the, for two days. What happens in Sri Lanka is people fly to Sri Lanka for a couple of days, they pop over to the Maldives, and they go to Malaysia, they go, you know, so it's it's really a requirement from within to say hey you know what i want to be more mindful of what i'm doing how i'm spending my money but also how am i spending my time and you're fostering relationships people are building businesses right people are sharing trade and and concepts and ideas and innovation through you know remote work and digital nomadism i think that's the beauty Mm. of it not everybody can do that. If you have a family of four, you know, are you going to be able to travel, you know, three months of the year in Rwanda and three in Sri Lanka? And then where's your base and home, you know, but that is also happening. That's a new form of education. You know, this whole school calendar cycle as, as your, as your sort of rigid travel planning, you know, that's, you know, the concept of a calendar. What does that look like in school? And for families, it's very strict. But now in the work world, the concept of a calendar is very blurry because you can work from here, there, everywhere, kind of, not everybody, but, you know, the people who have the means. So lots of different themes to unpack in this space. But I think there are models of extremely conscious uh, travel that that we can see happen, being born out of these crises and also just spending power, right? You You can't afford to fly around a lot. So I'd rather fly far, stay cheap somewhere, but then really build a temporary life there and that's that's the new tourism i think i i, I love that I, I often i often thought during the pandemic you know once you once you are working remotely anyway and you can work remotely yeah you know, i've been thinking about it a lot recently why why don't me and my family go say sri lanka for six weeks in the summer for the summer holidays just base yeah. ourselves in sri lanka for me i can you know i can work from sri lanka like i could work from here anyway so i can work as normal but yeah. you could live, you know, to a degree, try and live like a Sri Lankan, you know, find out what life is like as a Sri Lankan, you know, live in it, live, you know, right in, you, you know, immerse yourself fully in that culture. And I always think, God, what a fantastic education that is for your kids. I mean, that's, then they're, they're truly learning about the world around them by doing those kind of trips. 100%. And it's, if you were to do that, Jed, you're not going to have a list of, okay, must see this, must see that, must see this, must be. <laughs> you're going to explore and discover so much more authentically. And there will be some major attractions or sites that you've heard about or read about. Or everybody says you can't miss this. You you will have a bucket list element or two naturally, but it won't be that round island tour, which happens in Sri Lanka, or which happens in Bali. You know how you you go to the cultural triangle or the golden triangle in India. You, you have that typical tour in Egypt. You've got the typical tours in Brazil. Every country has that, right? And you go, okay, what is this? Like, is everything becoming some form of, uh, you know, commodity off the shelf? Because that's that's not going to cut it. And it's only that, it's hand- that checklist tourism, isn't it? Checklist tourism. It's just <laughs> ticket, ticket off it's it's lazy it's lazy um and it's and it's not it's not meaningful it's 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 meaningless um i want to change tack slightly shalana um because um i'm mindful of your time as well but i did want to speak to you a little bit about this because um as we record this um i noticed that you were on linkedin and you've been having a play with uh, chat gpt um as have i by the way um and and i'm i'm kind of impressed with this technology 
probably like most people when you first come across it, a little bit scared as well. Um, this kind of AI technology, what do you feel it can bring to the, you know, I guess the 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 sustainable and regenerative tourism conversation and um, and and the future uh, for our industry? Have you had a think about that yet, or are you still sort of playing with it and still cementing your your ideas on it? Uh, look, I think from what from what you know about me, I I sort of preach that offline is the new luxury. <laughs> you know, less screen time is more more healthy, better for any for everybody, and really you become more mindful when you stay away from technology. But in saying that, I am very much uh, appreciative. I, I very much appreciate the good that technology can bring right all forms of technology i am not an expert in ai and, and and new technologies but i think there's a strong power it's about harnessing that when right? it's about access as well where i see it being extremely useful is to actually educate and spread awareness now with chat gpt and and knowing who is the authority what is right or wrong you know it's like when wikipedia first came out or google search you know how do you vet and verify uh, but I think it's really access to information that we're talking about here, right? And the truth and transparency on that. So I, I I strongly believe that if technology is in the hands of the, the right individuals who have the right intentions to, when I, when I say the right, I mean, you know, values-based intentions to make better decisions, to move uh, progressively uh, towards healthier living for all, if we put it that way, if we don't want to say sustainably or regenerative, but really a higher quality of life for everybody, then I think there's an immense potential immense potential on a day-to-day -day, do i use chat gpt no i don't but i i do think there is that's a space to watch you know and people are trying to market tourism through virtual reality and augmented reality experiences but you know i i, I really think that um is perhaps good for education and marketing short term, but we really need to spend more time offline, more time in nature to be able to recognize the importance of regenerating nature, regenerating ourselves, communities, our food systems, right? The air and water we're consuming. So that's where technology, I think, needs to play a role saying, hey, it's like wearables, right? Oh, your heart rate's really bad, or your, you know, your blood thingies, whatever. You know, it's it's giving you information saying, warning, warning, way too much screen time, turn this off. I think AI needs to come in there to a traveler saying, hey, you got really bad sleep last night. This is not good. So I, I'm looking at it much more from a health perspective. Yeah, love that. Um, before I let you go completely, uh, Shalana, uh, for now, um, one of the questions that we always sort of say at the end with, with all of our guests is, look, if you had just one piece or of advice or a message or something that you would like to communicate to the wider world about um, sustainability and regenerative tourism, uh, what would that one thing be? Ah, well, nice. I like it because you use the two terms. Um, and I think sustainability and regeneration are not the same thing, right? So I think it's important to define and clarify that they can be used interchangeably and misused often. Where a lot of the travel business and industries and, and governments in general are focusing on is sustainability, which is essentially sustaining resources we have available to us today without compromising access to resources for future generations, right? So doing less harm, doing no damage, et cetera. Regeneration is about perpetual improvement right? Continuously improving the quality, the availability, the access to resources that we have now, ensuring that over time, they're continuously improved as well. So that's your, you know, natural capital, human capital, financial capital, 
um, or you know the six types, of, seven types of capital, if you'd like. Um, and that is a a key difference, which I feel like the audience of this podcast needs to recognize if they haven't already. Many of them may already be the convergent, so to speak, where sustainability is not enough. It's not. We cannot sustain the level we're at now, right? We just can't. Um, we need to regenerate ourselves, number one, first, you know, stop burning out, <laughs> uh, build healthier relationships with yourselves, with others. And then that triggers a conscious awakening, which allows you to be more mindful in your consumption, including travel. Um, and that is a regenerative approach. Once you've regenerated yourself, sustaining is just insufficient. And we are going to be sort of dragging this, uh, this sort of half dead animal with us everywhere we go. And that doesn't really feel good and doesn't work. So I think regeneration is something that you're really excited about. So much opportunity. If you want to take it from a capitalist business perspective, plenty of opportunity across the supply chain, not just in travel, but all businesses. And it's really exciting because you're constantly looking to improve with all stakeholders, ecosystems, communities, investors, developers, operators. Um, so yeah, that's my final words. <laughs> Perfect. On that note, Shalana, thank you so much for joining us. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Jed. Thanks for having me. And there you have it. My thanks again to Shalana for sharing his insights with us today. And if you'd like to learn more about Retrace Hospitality and the work which they're doing in Sri Lanka, then please do visit retracehospitality.com and you can join Shalana, Retrace Hospitality and hundreds more like-minded people and organizations by joining climate-friendly travel and indeed become an ambassador by signing up to join the SunX program at climatefriendly.travel or email us at info at thesunprogram.com but that's our show for this week thanks so much as always for your company And remember, when it comes to climate-friendly travel, every small step forward is a giant stride when we all step together.